Amen. If God is for us, who can be against us? Church, you may be seated. I ask you now to please join your hearts to mine as we lift up prayers, supplications, petitions, and thanksgivings to our God and Father. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, you are our dwelling place, our refuge. From everlasting to everlasting, O oh Lord, you are God. We are your people. We are your handiwork. This creation cries out that you exist, that you are its maker, that you are thrice holy. And Father, we know that the knowledge of your glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And those words that proceed from your mouth, that promise, that declaration, comforts, encourages, and strengthens us, your church, this morning. Oh God, we are finite and weak, but you are infinite, eternal, almighty. And we pray that you would help us to always seek shelter under your wings. To remember that you, you alone are our refuge. You are the glory of Israel. The shepherd, the savior of your people. Father, we pray that we would not be tempted to place our hope, our trust in anyone, anything but you alone. That you would help us, the gathering church, to fly to you for help and grace during our times of need and during our times of trouble. Oh God, we pray that you would smile upon our church. We acknowledge openly before you that we have been walking through a difficult season. We pray that you would please help us and that we would not seek solace or help in anyone else but you. Lord, we pray for your wisdom. We pray that you would give us discernment and charity in our hearts, even in our members meeting after the service today, that you would sustain us, that you would come to our aid, that this church would be built firmly upon the rock of Christ, that the winds would come and travail, that the storm would batter against us, that because of him that we would not crumble and fall. Oh God, please come to our aid. You are the help of your people in ages past and now and on into eternity, and we trust that. Lord, we also lift up a prayer on behalf of Englewood Baptist Church in New Jersey this morning, one of our sister congregations, and we ask that you would help Pastor Jim Dom to finish well as he is preparing to step down from his current position as the full-time pastor, and that you would bless Pastor Amos Gibello as he is going to be filling those shoes. We pray that you would equip 
Pastor Amos to serve well in that capacity, that you would help all the elders during this time of transition, that you would help their whole congregation. And as they have asked us to pray, Father, we do pray that you would grant them unity, that you would grant a smooth transition to the saints, and that you would equip that church to be pleasing in your sight, that you would make your face to smile upon them this morning and for many more years, that you would sustain Englewood Baptist Church. Father, we lift up a prayer to you on behalf of our nation. We pray on behalf of the United States of America um, as we are in the days after an election, even as votes are still being counted. We pray that you would grant repentance to the people of this country. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on this dry and parched land. Oh God, though we do not know the outcome of all of the elections, all the votes right now, we know that you do. Because in your secret counsel, you have decreed what the outcome will be for your purposes. Father, we do pray that when the new Congress is seated in January, that you would use them for the promotion of good and justice in our nation, that righteousness would prevail in the United States. But not just a civil, a civic righteousness, but that you would grant faith and repentance to the hearts of our magistrates and to our people. Father, we also pray for our brothers and sisters in China who are living under much less desirable, hospitable conditions than we, your people, are here. We pray that you would protect them, sustain them, and that you would encourage them, that the gospel would go forth as we are encouraged to hear reports that even in a country where the Communist Party is seeking to destroy the church, that the church cannot be destroyed, for Christ is the one building it. And we pray that the saints there would not lose heart, that they would continue meeting and worshiping you on your day, that they would be sharing the gospel with their friends and family. Lord, we pray that you would protect them from persecution, from the iron fists and the heels of their oppressive rulers, and that you would grant repentance to that nation. Oh God, we also pray for Pastor Jarvis Singleton and Redeeming Grace Church down in Florida. We pray that you would bless Pastor Jarvis and his ministry among those saints. And we ask that you would give him safe travels in a few days as he is going to be coming down here to minister to us this next Lord's Day and to spend time with us, fellowshipping with us over the weekend that you would sustain him through that time, and that that would be a great blessing and encouragement to him, to his church, and for us. Father, we also lift up to you hearty thanksgiving for the salvation of our friend Cody, for his recent baptism, being united to the church down there in Raleigh. We praise you for your mercy in drawing him to yourself, uniting him to Christ such that he is now our brother. We ask for your blessings upon him 
upon his wife and our sister, Rebecca, and their um, baby, Hesed. Oh God, please um, continue to pour out blessings from your storehouses in heaven upon that family. We are so encouraged that you chose to use us to plant seeds and that you use the church down there in Raleigh to water those seeds and that your Holy Spirit gave growth. And that makes us very happy today. We pray that you would continue to bless them. Father, we pray for um, the Duncan family. We ask that you would um, comfort them as they are all, you know, processing and grieving the loss of um, Todd's stepmother. We also pray, O oh Lord, that you would show your kindness to them in speedily providing work um, for Todd, that you would grant success to his labors and the meetings that he has been having and will continue to have and that you would um, work things out in such a way um, that he would be able to secure um, gainful employment to be able to provide um, for the family. And so we lift them up to you. We also pray for Lavender Rios of this very moment, as we know she is not feeling well. Um, we pray that you would give strength to her little lungs, that you would give healing to her, help her to feel better, show grace to her and to all the Rios family during this time where they're no doubt feeling discouraged that you would um, help them not to feel anxiety over their little ones, and that um, you would grant healing to them. And Father, now we finally ask for your help during this portion of our service where your word is proclaimed and preached. Help the congregation and the preacher to worship you in spirit and in truth during this time, illuminate our minds, open our hearts, and thwart the desires and the devices of Satan to steal the seed of the word from being sown in us and among us. And we lift up all these things to you, O God, in the name of our great high priest and advocate, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a joy, as always, to be standing before you in this pulpit today. We will be continuing our study through the book of Genesis in chapter 6. This morning we will specifically be looking at verses 5 through 8. This morning will bring us to the end of this particular Toledot section of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Please stand with me as the word of God is read. These are the words of God. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man 
and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the words of God. You may be seated. A question for you. Do you have regrets? I certainly do. I regret a lot. I regret lots of bad decisions that I've made. I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm still a young man, but, but I've made a lot of them in my time. I regret acting too quickly on some things. I regret dragging my feet on other things. And I certainly regret, most of all, all the sins that I have committed against God. Something tells me that I'm not the only one in here with regrets. Regret is something common to all people. It is part of the human experience. We get that. Yet in today's text, perplexingly, it is not a human who is expressing regret. It is God who is expressing regret in Genesis chapter 6. But that list of regrets which I just gave to you, we know, don't we, that none of that applies to God. God doesn't make bad decisions. He is all wise. God doesn't make mistakes. He always accomplishes his purpose. God certainly doesn't sin. God is all holy. So, how can God say here in Genesis 6 that he regrets something? Specifically, that he regrets making man. Well, to answer that question will require us to do a little review of what we have seen over the last few weeks. Last week, as we looked into the origins of the Nephilim, we examined verse 5 where God himself examines the wickedness of humanity on the earth. Remember how Moses wrote that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Through the fall, we saw that man's heart had become a dirty wellspring from which flowed all kinds of sin. Evil thoughts and evil desires were giving birth to evil actions everywhere. And yet we Christians know that even those evil thoughts themselves were sinful and evil in the sight of God. How else could the Lord Jesus say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her? Where? In his heart. Maybe that gaze is never outwardly acted on, but the gaze, the thought itself, deep in the hidden recesses of a man's mind is seen by God, and he hates it. Moses is expressing that, the sinful realities of the fallen man's flesh. God sees it in Genesis 6, and he hates it. The focus is now shifting from the character 
of man to the character of God. Verse 6 reads, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. Now we'll stop there for a moment. For a few moments, actually. What do these words, these somewhat shocking words, communicate to us? We'll consider the context that we just reviewed. This is God's perfect character on display as opposed to the evil character of the world that we have been talking about. Man was made in God's image and likeness. Man was created upright. Remember how God called Adam his son, but man fell. In this verse, paints a picture of a betrayed and disappointed parent. A text like Proverbs 17.25 comes to mind. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Now, brothers and sisters, verses like this one can be confusing to some readers because it can appear to be at odds with other biblical texts. For example, Numbers 23, 19, the same author Moses writes that God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Regret is, at least in part, a change of mind. And even more explicitly regarding regret is 1 Samuel 15 where God says, he regrets making Saul king, which is followed up just a few verses later, where God says that the glory of Israel, that is me, I, God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So on the one hand, we read that God regrets making man. We read that God regrets making Saul king. We also read God declaring emphatically that he does not regret or change his mind. Oh dear, have we found a contradiction in the Bible? Spoiler alert, no, we have not. Church, for us to rightly interpret texts like these, we must understand the whole counsel of God and we must understand a number of biblical truths and principles. First, we must remember that God does not change. James 1.17 is quite clear on that point, that in God there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is what theologians call immutable. That means he is unchangeable. God is not acted upon by outside forces. God isn't affected by anything. God is ase, that's another theological word, which means he is eternally self-existent. He simply was, he simply is, and he simply is to come. 
God is also impassable, meaning that God does not experience emotions. John Gill, the great Baptist theologian of the 17th century, writes that God is not subject to any passions or affections. Secondly, we consider that God's will is never thwarted. Isaiah 46, God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of of his will. I like how James Dolezal helpfully points out that our wills as creatures can certainly be thwarted. Um, we can fail to achieve desired outcomes. Such is not the case with our God, brothers and sisters. His end is always achieved by the exact means that he chooses. This is why God laughs at the wicked from heaven. Because he is the sovereign Lord of all. He can't be undermined. And his good and wise will is always accomplished. Now having said all that, let's seek to apply those truths to this verse. If God is unchangeable, if God doesn't experience emotions, if God doesn't regret, why does Moses say that God regrets making man? Why does Moses say that God grieves over making us? Is Moses saying that God realized that making humans was a bad decision and that he never should have done it? Or that God didn't see this coming and is just shocked by what man has become? Is Moses saying that God made a mistake? Absolutely not. We have regrets because we sin. We have regrets because we make poor choices. Such things are not true of God. But I've spent a lot of time talking about what these verses don't mean. But what does it mean? Beloved, this verse is one of many examples in the scripture where our God communicates true things about himself in poetic language so that we can understand. This is symbolic terminology. For example, many places... In the Bible, like Isaiah 63 verse 12, for example, speak of God's mighty and glorious arm extending to save and deliver his people. And yet, God doesn't have an arm. He is pure spirit, right? which also means he doesn't have a nose. But Leviticus 1.9 says that a food offering has a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In this very passage, look at verse 8, the eyes of God are referenced. 
But we know that God doesn't have actual eyes. He doesn't have a human body. He also doesn't have a bird's body. And yet the psalmist declares that God will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. Are these contradictions? Of course not. These are metaphors, poetic language, categories that we creatures can comprehend, which God applies to himself to aid us in our relationship with him. They communicate true things about God while not themselves being literally true. Those verses which I just quoted and alluded to, God is telling us that he is powerful, that he is faithful and protective, that he is worthy of our true worship of him. As I have said before in Sunday school class, God is incomprehensible, but he is not unknowable. John Calvin has been quoted as saying that God condescends to us in the scripture with a kind of baby talk when we read such statements. We know God doesn't really have an arm and nose or wings, but we know what those things mean and what they communicate to us about him. In the same way, we can understand that God, literally speaking, doesn't regret. This is, this is a big word, anthropopathism. This is an anthropopathism, which means an ascription of human feelings to something or someone that is not human. This is a metaphor that God is using to express something true about himself to us. But what is he expressing, you might ask? He is expressing to us through this language of regret, his holiness. His complete separation from sin. God can have absolutely no fellowship with darkness. God dwells in unapproachable light. Sin is treason against God. Scripture says God hates it. He says wickedness is an abomination to him. King David prays, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The Apostle John says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He will have no part in sin. It is opposed to his character. He is incapable himself of sinning and his righteous justice demands that sin be punished. Now, we know what it means for us to regret. We know the kind of heartache that can come with regret in our experience. And that's why God uses that word to convey to us the gravity of our separation from him. 
It has been rightly said by some men of God that it isn't God who changes, but our relation to and experience of him that changes. Warren Gage says it like this, when men begin to walk in disobedience, they turn from the son of God's favor and walk away in the shadow of his wrath. Now, I like that picture because in that picture, the sun is the same as it always was. It didn't change. It was affected by the motions of men. But the change of the direction of the men caused them to experience a change. Someone also gave me the analogy of a fire. That your experience of the fire is going to vary greatly from whether you're three feet away from it or right in the middle of it. But the fire never changed. It was the same as it always was. Your position in relation to the fire changed. All that is to say that God and his purposes did not change when man fell. Man changed. In fact... I believe Moses is intentionally contrasting, vividly contrasting, the perfect character of God with the character of fallen man. Because look at the rest of the verse. He says that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now compare that with verse 5 where we read that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil. Man's heart delights in evil. God's heart is grieved by evil. To say that God is grieved by what man had become is another powerful metaphor because grief is deep sorrow and sadness. We all understand what that means by our own experience. When God says that sin grieves him, that makes sense to us. It means that wickedness is contrary to him. And that language of God grieving is found in many other places in the scripture. Isaiah 63.10 says of the people, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul picks up on that same theme and exhorts us Christians to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Man was meant to be righteous bearers of the divine image. But in fallen man, that image is marred. We are called to be holy as God is holy, to delight in his law as he delights in it. So I ask you now, are you grieved by sin? Are you grieved by your sin? Are you broken over the ways that you have offended your creator? Do you weep with the tears of Peter, who is sorrowful for betraying his master and friend? Or do you weep with the tears of Judas Iscariot, who is sorrowful for the consequences of his sin? One man's sorrow led to life, the other man's sorrow led to death. 
Paul says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Which are you this morning? Do you take sin seriously? Do you hate it? Do you hate that you have offended God? Does that grieve your heart? Or do you tolerate sin? Do you even enjoy it? Do you just hate getting caught in sin? If you could sin with no consequence, would you? Church, Christians still battle their remaining corruption. No doubt about it. King Solomon says there is no one who does not sin. But Christians repent. They strive after holiness because they desire it. It hurts us to grieve the Spirit of God. We love Him. He's our Father. Believers know what it means to grieve and to mourn when we fall to the devil's temptations in our lives. We don't want God's fatherly displeasure upon us. So friend, if you are not mourning over your besetting sins, you should receive with great sobriety what Moses is confronting you with this morning. God says he is grieved over the sins of men. And if you are not, if you look at the sins of the world, if you look at your own sins and you are not grieved by them as God is, you should not have confidence that you belong to God. Because the regenerate person's heart delights in what its creator delights in. Not perfectly in this life, we understand that. But we also understand that it is impossible for a true believer to walk in sin forever. If you sin regularly in a high-handed way with no remorse, you must hear me when I tell you that such a path leads to hell. I know that this is heavy, but it should be. To ignore this is to ignore the clear implications of what God is telling us through Moses in Genesis 6. It is to ignore the voice of God that he forgives iniquity and transgressions, and we praise him for that. But also that he will by no means clear the guilty. Verse 7 is a crystal clear reflection of that truth which applies to those outside of Christ. There we read that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now this is what we have all known is coming as we've been working through this portion of Genesis. God has been patient with man, but now his patience is running out. The clock is ticking. They have persisted in their rebellion. They have persisted in their stiff-necked refusal to repent. So the verdict is declared from the judge. I will blot out man. The King James Version says, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. This is a severe judgment to be sure. But we believers know that it is just 
It is right for God to do this. He has given life to man, and he has the sovereign prerogative to take it away. He owes mankind nothing. We owe him everything. But it's not just mankind that's mentioned here, is it? It's all life upon the earth. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Well, why would that be? Well, that makes sense because all those things are under man's dominion, aren't they? When man broke the covenant of works, even the animals were impacted by the curse. The created order was placed in subjection to our race. Consider Psalm 8, 6 through 8. You have given man dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then a similar list is given. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So we see here that all creation, by virtue to that subject, to humanity, suffers because of the fall of humanity. The global flood, which we know God is pronouncing here, is no exception to that. All life, at least land-dwelling and avian life, would perish because of Adam's race. God says, I am sorry that I have made them. Now, beloved, God's plan for the universe in his secret counsel was not thwarted by Adam. It was always the secret will and decree of God that Adam would fall and that Christ would come as the greater Adam, to save his people from their sins. The lamb was slain from before the foundation of the world. The cross was not God's plan B contingency. It was always his intention. Yet at the same time, that does not negate human responsibility because Adam sinned freely. And God saying that he is sorry for making man conveys to us the appropriate sense of gravity. It cuts deep, doesn't it? And that's the point. That's why the Bible uses this kind of poetic metaphor ascribing human characteristics and feelings to God because God is not like us. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Scripture says that the highest heaven cannot contain God. And God himself says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So is he literally sorry that he made man? Is he changing his mind or having an emotional reaction here? No. Yet, this kind of language of regret and grief helps us to understand that when we sin, 
We don't sin against some kind of impersonal force out there in the universe. We don't sin against a lifeless idol of stone. We sin against the eternal living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who made us for himself and who we betrayed and ran away from. So this section of Genesis is closing on a very heavy and somber note. The threat of impending judgment, but its last words give gospel hope. Let's read verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God surveys a sea of evil, but Noah is a buoy of righteousness still afloat. He is one lighthouse on a dark seacoast. This is the man that God will use to preserve mankind through the waters of judgment and will ultimately use to bring the promised seed of the woman into the world, to destroy the works of that lisping serpent in the garden. That's good news. This is the gospel in seed form. But did Noah find favor with God because he picked himself up by his bootstraps and earned God's love because he worked really hard at it? No. God graciously took Noah and kept him for himself. He had mercy upon Noah. He gave Noah a new heart that wanted to please him. If God had not given Noah spiritual life, he would have been just like the rest of that evil generation. Noah was righteous and pleased God because he had been justified by faith alone. Noah believed the gospel and was accepted on the basis of Jesus' obedience to the law. Just like we are, beloved, the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to Noah's account, imputed to our account, our record of debt being canceled, nailed to the cross of Christ. I am compelled to draw your attention back to verse 7, where God said that he had determined to blot out man. This was an act of justice which glorifies God, but God also glorifies himself by extending mercy. In Isaiah 44, God uses that same term, but in a different way. God says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten about me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. King David likewise prays, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. God blots out the wicked. God 
mercifully blots out the sins of his people. He says in the new covenant, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Brothers and sisters, God has blotted out your record of transgressions against him. And he continues all throughout your life to forgive your sins as you confess them to him. And he is just to do so because the wrath that those sins deserve fell upon your substitute. That should create in your soul joy, a thankful heart. We can have peace in our lives because we, objectively speaking, have peace with God through Christ. The Lord has made us his people to be vessels of mercy for honorable use. He exalts his great name in us through our salvation. That is comforting, humbling, and encouraging. He does glorify himself through the destruction of the wicked, but he also glorifies himself through the salvation of his people blotting out the sins of those united to Jesus Christ upon whom that wrath fell for his people. He drunk it down to the dregs, not a drop left for us. Now preparing to enter a time of prayer and reflection, I must speak to the unbelievers among us this morning, and we are happy that you are here. God's threat of judgment still looms over the world. When Christ returns, he will, as we were singing earlier, judge the living and the dead. And friend, if you are not found to be in him, if you are not found to be in the ark of Christ, God will justly blot you out. But there is hope. He has provided salvation from the wrath to come. Fly to Jesus this morning, friend. Forsake your sins and trust him, him alone, to save you. You are not beyond redemption. Christ is both gracious and powerful. He will not fail to save anyone who comes to him in repentant faith. And now a word of comfort for the grieving Christian. As you consider how verse 6 speaks of God's grief over sin, to you who are burdened by your besetting sins and the ways that you fail to live righteously every day, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. To you who mourn over your sin, God promises you comfort in this life and in the life to come. Christ forgives your sins, brother, sister. He strengthens you to battle those sins that grieve you, that you hate. You who wish to be holy, 
strive for that holiness with enthusiasm and joy because you are not doing it without hope and help. You are looking to him who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Remember that the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It's because of Christ, not you, that you are accepted before God. You are united to the beloved one. He is your hope in life and death. And that is the sweet balm for your soul this morning. Weak and weary Christian, if you are grieving over your sins, that should actually be a kind of encouragement to you. An encouragement that you belong to God. The God who says in Genesis 6 that he grieves over sin. So avail yourself of the means of grace. Trust in his promise. He promises that he will bring the good work that he began to completion. You can trust that promise because he says, I, the Lord, do not change. He isn't going to change his mind concerning you. He isn't going to fail to bring you to Mount Zion. God transcends our ability to fully understand or comprehend. He is not like us. He is the creator. We are the creature. His essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. And yet, as we saw today, we are able to know him and to have a relationship with him. He isn't distant. He isn't aloof. He isn't far away from us. He indwells us. He invites us to call him our Abba Father. He loves us. He speaks of himself in his word. Sometimes as regretting, grieving, extending an arm or a wing even. He does that to help us wrap our little finite minds just a little bit around his infinite, eternal being, his glorious, unchanging attributes. He stoops down to our level. He uses words and categories that we understand to help us as we seek to delight ourselves in him, as we were created to do. Through such language, God instructs, comforts, and encourages his saints. He knows our limitations. He knows our frailty. So, beloved, we finite men and women have many regrets. But as we look back on our mistakes and sins, and even as we grieve and mourn those sins, we arise and go to him, confessing them, knowing that his throne room is a sweet place of grace for us, his adopted sons and daughters. The Lord God Almighty 
brought you into his family, made you a brother, a co-heir with the Lord Jesus. He loves us. More properly speaking, he is love. And though, dear one, you have many regrets, God, your Father, does not. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, our dwelling place throughout all generations, we thank you for extending your mighty right hand, redeeming us, your people. Father, for condescending to us, inviting us to call you Father, knowing that we will worship you forever and ever. And right now, even in this worship service, you are giving us a little taste of that joy that we will have in the eternal state. Oh God, you are magnificent. You are holy, holy, holy. You are most high, most worthy of all of our praise, worship, and devotion. We thank you that you have put your Holy Spirit within us, that you have made us a temple of your Spirit. We pray that you would help us to glorify you every day of our lives. And, oh God, we pray that you would help us in our weakness to never take our eyes off the Lord Jesus, to never forget that because of what he did, because he took upon himself our nature, suffered for our sins on the cross, that we have peace with you through him. And may that never fail to fill our hearts with joy and peace and gratefulness to you. And we lift up all this to you, O God, in Christ's blessed and holy name. Amen.